the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 22, The Tricolor Terror. In the wake of the king's attempted escape, the French nation had to answer some very difficult questions. What to do with King Louis? What to do with the French monarchy? What to do with the constitution that enshrined that monarchy and that needed to be accepted by that monarch? Unsurprisingly, there was no shortage of answers to these tremendously important questions. And also, unsurprisingly, many people were disappointed with the answer eventually selected. Unfortunately, that disappointment would result in bloodshed and repression. Now, before we jump into it, a quick reminder that I did post a show update the other week, outlining everything from potential plans for Season 2 to the various bonus content that I've started to produce. So, do give it a little listen, and for those of you that already have, at the end of the show, I'll be quickly running through the two episode extras for this specific episode. So, without further ado, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 22, The Tricolor Terror. Mirabeau dead. King fled. Captured instead. Trouble ahead. Louis XVI's great gamble had failed. A series of improbable events had denied the king his freedom, and so, after having been apprehended in the town of Varennes on the 21st of June 1791, the royal family was escorted back to Paris. If you were to encapsulate the king's re entry into the city in just one word, that word would be funeral. The large Berlin carriage resembled a hearse as it made its way through the streets of the capital. Inside that hearse was the corpse of the French monarchy. The crowd, which gathered to watch the royal family's return, remained largely quiet. Tens of thousands of people kept their hats on their heads in a silent protest against the fugitive king. More vocal protests had been forbidden by the authorities. Posters published by the National Assembly summed up perfectly the constitutional crisis that gripped the nation. Whoever applauds the king will be beaten. Whoever insults him will be hanged. Arriving at the palace, Lafayette publicly reprimanded the king for his foolish actions and lamented the trouble he had caused. Privately, however, Lafayette asked for orders. The king never known for his capacity to grasp the political realities of a situation, did so perfectly. I seem to be more at your orders 
then you are at mine. Louis' observation was an accurate one, for the monarch was a king in name only. In reality, the flight to Varennes had transformed France into a republic in all but name. On the morning of the 21st of June, the king's escape was discovered in the capital, leading revolutionaries and the National Assembly itself to unilaterally seize considerable powers and prerogatives. The constitutional crisis triggered by the king's departure demanded such aggressive actions. Lafayette, for his part, had the unfortunate task of dictating orders to arrest the monarch. Bailly and Lafayette agreed this had to be done for the public good, but with the assembly not yet in session, and with no time to waste, Lafayette decided he would take full responsibility for the unenviable task. The commander of the National Guard had sworn an oath to the nation, to the king, and to the constitution. In order to preserve his oath to the nation, he would have to use powers not granted to him in the constitution to deny the wishes and liberty of the king. On the morning of the 21st, Lafayette dictated the following. The king, having been removed by the enemies of the revolution, the bearer is instructed to impart the fact to all good citizens who are commanded in the name of their endangered country to take him out of their hands and to bring him back to the keeping of the National Assembly. The latter is about to assemble, but in the meantime, I take upon myself all the responsibility of this order. Paris, June 21, 1791. This order extends to all the royal family. In dictating the arrest order for the royal family, Lafayette had used powers outside of his legal prerogatives. Just hours later, the National Assembly would follow suit. Unsurprisingly, panic was the primary reaction to the king's flight. His departure was seen as heralding civil war, foreign invasion, and the resurrection of the old regime. As the liberal monarchist and prominent Jacobin, Charles de la Mette, warned, In 24 hours, the kingdom could be in flames, and the enemy could be at our door. Extraordinary times called for extraordinary measures. With the patrie in danger, the National Assembly declared itself in permanent session, suspended the king, and entrusted executive power in a combination of royal ministers and committees. Henceforth, royal assent was not needed to enact laws and the king's veto was abolished. Preparing for imminent conflict with European powers, the legislature sent deputies to inspect key military assets, declared the enlistment of some 100,000 men, and wrote diplomatic letters to foreign leaders, seeking to ensure the maintenance of peace. Hoping to apprehend the king before he made good his escape, the assembly confirmed Lafayette's orders to detain the royal family and closed the borders of the nation. With the king suspended from his post and the National Assembly in full control of the country, France had become a republic overnight. It just wasn't called one yet. However, one thing that the nation lacked which denied it from actually being a republic was the ideological inclination to make it so. The Assembly had no ambition to formalise its new republican reality. Both the centrist and conservative factions of the Assembly 
supported the monarchy, and together they composed a sizable majority. These constitutional monarchists had no desire to outright repudiate the monarchy in favour of a republic. In fact, the majority of the assembly started to adopt the outright lie that Louis had not fled, but rather had been abducted. Lafayette's own orders said that the king had been removed by the enemies of the revolution. Perhaps surprisingly, many liberal monarchists of the democratic left were willing to go along with this fiction. The king may have been on the run, but that didn't mean he wasn't still the king. The French nation had been a monarchy for centuries, and old habits die hard. The far left of Paris was willing to kick the habit, however. Many left-wing intellectuals had long supported a republic, and this was their opportunity to come out of the closet. On the 21st of June, while the king was still attempting his escape, the radical leadership of the city's prominent political clubs wasted no time in progressing their republican agenda. The clubs declared themselves permanently in session, swore oaths of tyrannicide to protect French liberty, and increased their agitations in favour of universal male suffrage and direct democracy. A petition from the Cordelier Club read, It no longer exists, this pretense of a convention between a people and its king. Louis has abdicated the throne. Now Louis means nothing to us, unless he becomes our enemy. Here, we are then at the same point as we were when the Bastille was taken, free and without a king. It remains to be seen whether it is advantageous to appoint another. As the political societies began to publicly agitate for a republic, the revolutionary press swung their support behind them. For the first time, publications openly declared their support for a new form of government, and more radical journals derided the king as a traitorous pig. While neither the Cordeliers nor the Cercle Social had called for a republic prior to the flight to Varennes, they began to do so now. The petition on the 21st of June beseeched the Assembly either to declare right away that France is no longer a monarchy, but rather a republic, or at least to wait for all the departments or the primary assemblies to express their desire on this important question before thinking of plunging the finest realm in the world into the chains and trammels of monarchy for a second time. If republic had been a dirty word in 1790, it was now increasingly the catch cry of Paris's radical intellectuals and their supporters amongst the working class. For the first time, proponents of a republic were operating in broad daylight and they intended to take their fight to the Assembly's monarchist majority. Historian Francois Mignot writes, The Republican Party now began to appear. Hitherto it had remained either dependent or hidden, because it had been without an existence of its own, or because it wanted a pretext for displaying itself. The struggle, which lay at first between the Assembly and the Court, then between the Constitutionalists and the Aristocrats, and latterly among the Constitutionalists themselves, was now about to commence between the Constitutionalists and the Republicans. In times of revolution, such is the inevitable course of events. 
The agitations of the Republican political societies and their allies in the free press were supercharged by the actions of Louis himself. Before departing Paris, the king had penned a controversial manifesto which he had deliberately left behind. In the document, Louis denounced the revolution more or less in its entirety. He warned of the despotism of the clubs. He lamented the erosion of the ancient institutions and customs of the nation, and he listed his numerous grievances with the new order. Outrageously, Louis claimed that he had been the prisoner of Paris, and thus announced that his concessions over the past two years were given only under duress. In this manifesto, the king now repudiated these terrible laws and rescinded these concessions. While the moderates of the assembly had tried to promote the lie that Louis had been abducted, his own words made it impossible to sustain such a blatant fabrication. Such an inflammatory manifesto outraged the left, particularly the Republicans and the authoritarian populists. Calls for the king's trial rose from the city's intellectual left. Abbe Gregoire, the patriot priest who was the first member of the Catholic Church to take the controversial oath to the Constitution, lobbied not just for abdication, but for prosecution. According to the prominent cleric, the king had betrayed the liberty of the French people. The highest public servant deserts his post. He arms himself with a false passport, after having said, in writing to the foreign powers, that his most dangerous enemies are those who pretend to spread doubts about the monarch's intentions. He breaks his word, and he leaves the French people a declaration which, if not criminal, is at least, however it is envisioned, contrary to the principles of our liberty. While some prominent revolutionaries called for abdication and even prosecution, the majority of the assembly, however, was not behind them. In fact, even those deputies previously considered to be of the left were deeply divided on the issue. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. The Jacobin Club 
had always been a broad church of opinions. Since its creation, it had straddled views ranging from the centre to the far left, and even the more radical, more democratic parts of the club splintered further between liberal monarchists, republicans and authoritarian populists. These divisions came to the fore as the debate on the future of France and the future of the king dominated the agenda. Simplistically put, the Jacobin Club consisted of three competing camps, each with three competing priorities. The majority of the Jacobins, who were also deputies of the National Assembly, sat firmly in the monarchist camp. Encapsulated best in the triumvirate of Antoine Barnev, Adrien Duport and Alexander de la Met, these Jacobin deputies may have been of the left. They may have been opponents and rivals of Mirabeau just months before, but they were still liberal monarchists nonetheless. These deputies were in no rush to remove either the French monarchy or the specific French monarch that currently occupied the throne. Instead of progressing the revolution, in the wake of the king's flight, these deputies were fast becoming concerned with how to consolidate the revolution. Needless to say, putting the king on trial, let alone proclaiming a republic, was hardly going to foster that objective. Opposing the monarchist majority within the club was the republican minority. Perhaps the most recognisable republican deputy was the future Parisian mayor, Jérôme Pétion, who we heard from in the last episode. Other prominent Republicans inside the club included the Cordeliers Danton and the Circal Sociales Brissot, although neither men were deputies of the Assembly. The Republicans were obviously pushing for a republic, but they also focused their efforts on building support for abdication. If King Louis was forced to abdicate in favour of his six-year-old son, in reality, executive power would be entrusted in a council of ministers hand-picked by the National Assembly. At that point in time, France would essentially institutionalise the current reality of being a republic in all but name. Thus, the Republicans saw Regency as a step towards both greater popular sovereignty and republicanism, and they started to pursue abdication vigorously. Between these pro- and anti-monarch camps were some authoritarian populists, best embodied by Maximilien Robespierre. Robespierre was cautious of pursuing a republic, especially one without universal male suffrage. A republic dominated by active citizens might produce a Lafayette presidency, which isn't exactly what Robespierre wanted to do. Furthermore, Robespierre had not given up on the monarchy and the benefits of continuity. As he put it, the constitution provided a republic with a monarch. Thus, the left and its leadership were significantly divided on just how to respond to the constitutional crisis created by Louis' attempted escape. The majority sought reconciliation and consolidation. A vocal minority sought abdication and progression, while others found themselves caught somewhere in the middle. Eventually, however, these ideological positions needed to be transformed into tangible actions. Over the subsequent weeks after Louis' failed escape, the National Assembly had to decide just what it was going to do to address this constitutional crisis. Having suspended the king and declared itself in permanent session, it could not just indefinitely postpone the constitutional conundrums the king's flight had presented. Four key factors influenced the Assembly's eventual decision. 
The first of these four factors was war, or more accurately, fear of war. The flight to Varennes was widely seen as heralding not only civil war, but foreign invasion. Indeed, when the assembly convened on the morning of the 21st of June, one of its first decisions was to send emissaries to various neighbouring capitals, seeking to maintain peace. At this point in time, France was far from ready to fight a military conflict with the monarchies of Europe. The bloody Nancy munity of August 1790 and the Assembly's reforms both prior to and after that revolt had left the French armed forces ill-disciplined and ill-prepared. Furthermore, many officers had emigrated, and in the wake of the flight to Varennes, more officers were defecting. On the evening of the 24th of June, three days after the King's capture, all the senior officers of Dunkirk abandoned their posts and emigrated to nearby Austrian-occupied Belgium. The possibility of war was made all the more real in the first week of July, when the Queen's brother, Emperor Leopold II, released the Padova Circular. In it, Leopold made clear that Austria only recognised those laws which Louis accepted voluntarily. Furthermore, he demanded that the king should be restored his personal liberty immediately, and warned that any harm against the monarch would be responded to with force. Given this threat from the emperor, many in the assembly feared that forced abdication would guarantee conflict with Austria. Forget prosecution or the proclamation of a republic, it seemed that even abdication was a one-way ticket to international war and the likely resurrection of the old regime. To make matters worse, Austria wasn't the only regal boogeyman under the revolutionaries' bed. It was feared that other European powers such as Prussia, Russia, Sweden, Britain or Spain might intervene as well. The British ambassador, Earl Gower, noted this misplaced fear with delight. In the present situation of things in this country, one is not surprised that slight occurrences should afford matter for serious alarm. But one cannot help smiling when some few vessels are mistaken for the British fleet, and that by so egregious a mistake, a whole country should be in arms. The fears that the inhabitants express of a Spanish invasion are equally well-grounded. In the psyche of the French nation, foreign threats lurked everywhere. In many ways, one can argue that, psychologically, the nation was already at war. But as outright conflict had not commenced, the Assembly was wary of pursuing policies that would lead a vulnerable and ill-prepared France into open warfare with the monarchies of Europe. The time had not yet come for revolutionary war. Fear of war, however, was just one factor influencing the Assembly's decision. Fear of the streets was another. For some time, the political societies of the capital had been deliberately fostering support amongst the working people of Paris. For months, they had agitated in favour of democratic reforms and championed the cause of universal male suffrage. In the wake of Varennes, the political activities of the clubs escalated significantly. A whole host of professions, ranging from blacksmiths to typographers to carpenters, went on strike, and strikes and their associated disturbances became commonplace in the capital. 
The publication, Li Babala, complained to readers on the 6th of July that the working people of Paris were the source of so much trouble and woe. Citizens of every sort are fast losing patience with the workers. The National Guard, merchants, manufacturers, the bourgeois, the artisans alike, all cry out against these people who are in the pay of sedition mongers. Throughout late June and early July, the working people of Paris became increasingly vocal and large gatherings and protests became more frequent. The bourgeois National Assembly viewed these developments with concern. The masses championed the cause of universal male suffrage, but it was the Assembly who had instituted limited suffrage in the first place. The legislature had always been sceptical of unrestrained democracy, and the increasing disorder in the streets, combined with cries for the king's dethronement, only made the body more hostile to the demands of the common people. Notionally, the National Assembly represented the people, but the body was composed not of workers or artisans, but of members of the nation's middle class. That class had no interest in sharing power with the rabble in the streets, a rabble that was increasingly menacing to the National Assembly. The third factor influencing the Assembly's decision was the Constitution. Since the middle of 1789, the National Constituent Assembly, to use the body's full name, had been labouring away on the Constitution. The fabled document was almost complete, and unsurprisingly, the King was at the centre of it. To remove the King would require the Assembly to start the whole process again. In short, the deputies had no desire to completely scrap their work. Finally, as alluded to while discussing the division amongst the Jacobins, the Assembly was presented with a replacement dilemma. If the king was removed, who would replace him? The heir to the throne was just six years old, too young to exert any real influence. Regency would emasculate executive power and leave the legislature the supreme force of the land. Some monarchists suggested the Duc d'Orléans as a potential replacement, but the king's cousin was loathed in many circles and never came close to gaining the level of support required to replace the Bourbons sitting on the throne. A republic was an option, but just what kind of republic would it be? Would it be a republic of active citizens, headed by the likes of Lafayette, or a virtuous republic of the people, with universal male suffrage, headed by the likes of Robespierre? All of these options had supporters, but none had anywhere near a firm majority. The only option which could command a majority in the assembly was the status quo. Historian Gaetano Salvamini states, It would have been a different matter had the assembly been able to depose the king and put another in his place. But the heir was a child, and the king's brothers were emigrants, and his cousin, the Duke of Orléans, was held in universal contempt. Were an executive council to be set up at the side of a king deprived of power, it would in fact be a republic disguised, insecure and necessarily provisional, but a republic all the same. No way remained but that of half measures. 
to keep the monarchy so that a total revolutionary landslide might be avoided, but to suspend the king from his functions, in deference not only to the general indignation, but in the forlorn hope that he might come to his senses. In the middle of July 1791, two years after the fall of the Bastille, the debate on the king's future came to a head. If Mirabeau was watching the debate from heaven, I'm sure he would have been laughing. Leading the monarchists were individuals who you would not have expected just weeks before. Underscoring how the flight to Varennes shifted the political centre overnight, Mirabeau's rivals and adversaries on the left were now championing the positions of the monarchist centre. Specifically, the triumvirate Antoine Barneve, Adrien Duport and Alexander de Lamette had formed an alliance with both Lafayette and the court and were now seeking to consolidate the revolution. As a reminder, while the triumvirate had always been liberal monarchists, for some time their democratic ideals had been a serious thorn in the side of Mirabeau's centrists and Murray's conservatives. Historian Francois Mignet goes as far as to describe the three men as the Assembly's most extreme patriots prior to the rise of individuals like Maximilien Robespierre and Jérôme Pétion. Adrien Duport, the former radical of the Paris Parlement, had fought passionately against the distinction between active and passive citizens. Antoine Barneve voted against the existence of a Senate and had championed many of the Assembly's controversial religious reforms. Alexander de Lamette had fought with Mirabeau over laws restricting noble emigration, even trying to have the latter expelled from the Jacobin Club prior to his death. Furthermore, his brother, Charles de Lamette, had been a key player in the abolition of nobility back in June 1790. After Varenne, however, the triumvirate and their allies shifted firmly into the political centre. Fear of war had turned these former liberal firebrands into more conservative firefighters. On the 15th of July, the National Assembly exonerated the king, declaring that Louis had been abducted by the forces of the counter-revolution. The body recommended neither abdication nor prosecution. Antoine Barnev, in a series of impressive speeches on the 15th and 16th of July, defended the National Assembly's controversial decision. Barnev warned that the revolution was dangerously unstable and had to be consolidated. If the revolution moved towards liberty, the destruction of royalty could result. If the revolution moved towards equality, the destruction of private property could result. Proclaiming that the aristocracy had been destroyed and that it was time to bring the revolution to an end, Barnev presented a stark choice to the deputies of the assembly. Were they willing to end this revolution, or were they willing to start the revolution all over again? In short, either Louis XVI would reign over France, or revolutionary lawlessness would do so instead. The disturbances in the streets of Paris underscored his point, and the majority of the National Assembly agreed. The result was that Louis got to keep his throne. Now before we get into how the left responded to the Assembly's decision to pardon Louis of any crime, because, you know, spoiler alert, they're not happy about it, 
I do want to discuss some historiography surrounding the key issue which drove the Assembly to adopt this decision. In his speeches, Barnev focused on the fact that property was under threat should the revolution blindly embrace the principle of equality. In one speech he asked the rhetorical question if there was still to be destroyed an aristocracy other than that of property. Unsurprisingly, private property was something held dear by the Assembly's middle-class deputies, and these questions thus made the demands of the Parisian working class all the more menacing. The ideas of universal suffrage and republicanism were deliberately co-mingled with fears of the loss of wealth and private property. Thus, as historian Peter McPhee puts it, Louis had therefore become a symbol of stability against the increasingly radical demands of passive citizens and their supporters. Building on this theme, the Marxist historian Peter Kruputkin asserts that it was fear of the masses, of their demands, of their increasing willingness to strike and to mobilise in the streets, that prompted the Assembly to embrace Louis XVI and attempt to consolidate constitutional monarchy. The Assembly, which was so decidedly anti-royalist on June 22, now suddenly reversed their decisions, and on July 15, they published in great haste a decree which declared the king to be blameless and pronounced against his dethronement, and therefore against the republic. Thenceforth, to demand a republic became a crime. What had happened during those 20 days that the leaders should have tacked so suddenly and formed the resolution of keeping King Louis XVI on the throne? Had he shown any signs of repentance? Had he given any pledges of submission to the Constitution? No, nothing of the kind. The explanation lies in the fact that the middle-class leaders had again seen the spectre which had haunted them since July 14 and October 6, 1789. The rising of the people. The men with the pikes were out in the streets, and the provinces seemed ready to rise, as in the month of August 1789. Thousands of peasants were hastening from their villages at the sound of the tocsin on the road to Paris, and bringing the king back to the capital. The mere sight of this had given them a shock. And now they saw the people of Paris ready to rise, arming themselves and demanding that the revolution should go on, asking for a republic, for the abolition of the feudal laws, for equality, pure and simple. The agrarian law, the bread tax, the tax upon the rich, were they not going to become realities? No, rather the traitor king, the invasion of the foreigner, than the success of the popular revolution. This is why the Assembly hastened to make an end of all Republican agitation in hurrying through, on July 15, the decree which exculpated the king, re-established him on the throne, and declared all those who wished to push forward the revolution to be criminals. The belief that the Assembly was frightened by an increasingly mobilised and assertive working class is shared by other historians, representing very different schools of historiography. Historian Jonathan Israel notes not only the popular nature of the left-wing opposition, 
but foreshadows the response of the political societies to the Assembly's embrace of the fugitive king. Organised opposition to Assembly policy and the monarchy undoubtedly became a full-scale, popular and plebeian movement at this point, one orchestrated not by Robespierre or the populist leadership, but the radical intellectuals who forged the revolution. Those gathering at the Cordeliers and Circal refused to be the dupes of charlatanism and the designs of Lafayette, Barnev and the Lametz. The popular societies of Paris and their allies in the revolutionary press had no desire or intention to allow the king to retain his throne. Throughout June and July, both the Cordelier Club and the Cercle Social organised petition after petition, strike after strike, march after march, attacking the king and demanding democratic reforms. Danton rallied against the monarch. What do I hear? Louis XVI not forfeited his crown? What? Has he not himself declared that he was hunting after the means of destroying the constitution? Is he weak or is he criminal? It wasn't just the king that the left attacked ferociously. The left had no time for the corrupt and power-hungry triumvirate as well. Barnev, Dupont and the Lamette brothers were an opportunistic clique, intent on denying the people their liberties and supporting a discredited and pathetic monarch. The triumvirate, following in Mirabeau's footsteps of patriots-turned-pragmatists, responded in kind. Embracing Montesquieu and the British model, the new centre attacked republicanism as a fiction, the kind which promised the world yet would deliver an atlas. Barnev warned that France was no America. Unlike the United States, the nation was surrounded by foreign enemies. Land was not abundant, and ancient institutions conspired against the new order. The great Republican villains of history, names like Cromwell and Sulla, were propagated by the court's defenders to warn against the horrors that a new revolution would unleash. This venomous debate amongst the leaders of the revolution spilt out of Paris and into the provinces. While the majority of the country and the majority of the nation's Jacobin clubs backed Barnev and the Assembly, support for a republic could still be found outside of the capital. More than 80 Jacobin clubs called for either the suspension or outright dethronement of King Louis, including the clubs of Rennes, Toulouse, Lyon, Orléans and Bordeaux. While republicanism was not rampant outside of the capital, it was undeniably present. According to the deputy Gautier de Bazayazat, he received numerous letters from his own constituents insisting that the nation treat the king as a criminal guilty of treason. Now to be clear, the popularity of republicanism was limited. As historian Elair Belloc notes, it is telling that the authorities and institutions of the nation immediately conspired to support the monarchy and did not rapidly embrace republican ideals despite the king quite literally attempting to flee the nation and reverse the revolution. Nevertheless, a genuine and unbridgeable divide had emerged amongst the revolutionary left. 
an ideological chasm split those revolutionaries who wanted to progress the revolution and those revolutionaries who wanted to end it. This division was promptly displayed within the Jacobin Club. Tired of the agitation of the club's vocal Republican minority, on the 16th of July, Barnev, Dupont, Lafayette and the Lamette brothers, together with the club's liberal monarchists, walked out. Establishing the Fayon Club, 200 deputies split from the Jacobins, which had for so long been the home of the revolution's leading men. Just a handful of deputies remained in the club, including Maximilien Robespierre, Jérôme Pétion and Abbé Grégoire. Consequently, by the middle of July, the constitutional monarchists appeared to dominate the revolution. They dominated the National Assembly, the Paris Commune, the newly created Fouillon Club and the leadership of the National Guard. Yet the question was whether or not they could keep their new, tenuous grip on power. The sudden rightward shift of the triumvirate, together with the restlessness of Paris, made this far from guaranteed. The British ambassador was doubtful, and like the revolutionary left, viewed the actions of the triumvirate as self-serving. Lord Gower wrote in his diary, The party of Barnev, the Lamettes and Dupont, having almost entirely lost their ill-deserved popularity, showed, before the late event, an inclination to change their system of politics in order to preserve their importance. The present state of things has afforded them an opportunity of adopting a new line of conduct, and a sort of coalition has taken place between them and the aristocratic party, which will probably not last long. The ascendancy of this new monarchist coalition would not go unchallenged by the popular societies of Paris. When the Assembly had made its intentions clear to exonerate the king, the city's revolutionary clubs immediately mobilised their supporters in a direct challenge to the legislature's authority. On Friday the 15th of July, the day after the second anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, a large crowd of approximately 12,000 people gathered on the Champ de Mars, the site of the Festival of the Federation a year prior. Angered by the Assembly's intention to exonerate the King, a petition was circulated which denounced both the King and the legislature. The former had fostered civil war through his traitorous flight, while the latter had neglected its duty by pardoning the King prior to consulting the nation's departments and primary assemblies. When the crowd attempted to deliver this petition to the deputies they trusted, namely Robespierre, Pétion and Grégoire, they were halted by the National Guard. However, as any half-decent inspirational Instagram account will tell you, if at first you don't succeed, try again. So the next day, on Saturday the 16th, support for a new petition was mustered again, once more at the Chape de Mars. This petition denied the competency of the Assembly, declared Louis XVI as deposed, and demanded a substitute for the traitorous monarch. The fact that Jacobin members helped to craft and propagate this petition, including Brousseau and Danton, outraged the liberal monarchists of the club, and contributed to the club's permanent splintering that day. On Sunday the 17th of July, an immense crowd gathered to demonstrate their support for the radical petition. Among the crowd 
and encouraging the people were prominent members of the Cordelier Club, such as Georges Danton and Camille de Mala. Now, it's important to remember that the very act of creating such a petition was illegal. Petitioning by clubs and passive citizens was outlawed back in May 1791. So when some 50,000 people gathered at the Champ de Mars to sign this petition, this activity was against the law. The authorities, having tolerated such unlawful demonstrations for days, had had enough. The clubs were deliberately defying the law. They were deliberately jeopardising the public order. They were openly challenging the power of the Assembly and the constitutional system it represented. Pressured by the Assembly, the Paris Commune decided to act. The National Guard was summoned, and Mayor Bailly unfurled the red flag of martial law. Lafayette and 1,200 of his National Guard arrived at the Champ de Mars, yet despite the red flag and the presence of the troops, the crowd did not disperse. The events that followed are both murky and highly contested. It is debated as to whether the crowd was given a verbal instruction to vacate or whether they were even given any opportunity to do so at all. What is clear, however, is that the guard were met with stones thrown at their heads, and the volunteers, outnumbered 50 to 1, returned the favour. The guard fired at the crowd, and bodies hit the ground. The Champ de Mars massacre had occurred. The Republican newspaper, Les Revolutions de Paris, summarised the controversial and significant event. The field of the Federation is a vast plain, at the centre of which the altar of the fatherland is located, and where the slopes surrounding the plain are cut at intervals to facilitate entry and exit. One section of the troops entered at the far side of the military school, another came through the entrance somewhat lower down, and a third by the gate that opens onto the Grand Rue de Chaloux, where the red flag was placed. The people at the altar, more than 15,000 strong, had hardly noticed the flag when shots were heard. Do not move! They are firing blanks! They must come here to post the law! The troops advanced a second time. The composure of the faces of those who surrounded the altar did not change, but when a third volley mowed many of them down, the crowd fled, leaving only a group of a hundred people at the altar itself. Alas, they paid dearly for their courage and blind trust in the law. Men women and even a child were massacred there, massacred on the altar of the fatherland. Just how many people died remains a mystery. Authorities put the figure as low as 11. Marat, however, claimed 400 innocents had perished, while some less biased observers state the death toll to be in the vicinity of somewhere between 50 to 70. The death toll is largely irrelevant, however. What matters is not the quantity of blood spilt, but the fact that blood was spilt in the first place. The Assembly's monarchists, protecting the power and position of not only themselves, but of the king as well, had violently suppressed the people. The Assembly of the people had undeniably acted against the people. For the first time, the Parisian Third Estate was at war with itself. Unsurprisingly, such an event is full of grey history. 
Defending the actions of the Assembly are historians such as Francois Mignet and William Smith. Mignet describes the events as a cruel necessity, and Smith states that while several people were unhappily killed, Lafayette and Bailly were maintaining the public peace, and their actions were both regular and completely justifiable. Mayor Bailly himself defended his actions in a similar manner, stating, Public order was totally destroyed. The country was in danger. This position is not entirely without merit. Firstly, it is more than possible that such an immense crowd could have endangered both the Assembly and the King should it have turned violent. That is exactly what occurred during the October days in late 1789. Secondly, the crowd had already turned violent in multiple ways, and I'm not just talking about throwing stones at some National Guardsman. Earlier that morning, two men had been discovered hiding under the altar of the Fatherland, the grand altar that had been created for the Festival of the Federation the previous July. But while the altar had been built to help promote national harmony, there was nothing harmonious about the events of the 17th. As the petition's supporters were gathering around the altar, the crowd was highly suspicious of the two men discovered under the structure. The crowd suspected them of being counter-revolutionary agents, either spies or, even worse, saboteurs or assassins. Whatever their true reason for being under the altar, which some historians have suggested might have been to look up women's skirts, the hostile crowd quickly determined their counter-revolutionary guilt and dealt out some revolutionary justice. AKA, both men were promptly killed. These murders were used as part of the pretext for martial law, that and the fact that Lafayette was almost shot dead by an armed assassin who had emerged from the crowd earlier that day. It is this violence, combined with the capacity for further violence, that some contemporaries and historians point to as they defend the Declaration of Martial Law. The minutes of the Paris Commune from the 17th of July conveniently emphasise the hostile and menacing nature of the crowd, which it describes as Foreigners paid to sow disorder, preach rebellion, proposing to encourage large rallies in the criminal hope of misleading the people. From this point of view, the defenders of the Assembly and the Municipality state that martial law was necessary to protect the capital from vagabonds, brigands, and sedition mongers. The subsequent bloodshed was unfortunate, but for the good of the nation, the capital's peace and security had to be maintained. In a limited way, I am sympathetic to this perspective. The leaders of the popular societies were undoubtedly challenging the established power of the authorities. They were essentially pushing for a second revolution, a republican revolution. The established authorities, the assembly and the commune, couldn't just let this go unchallenged, and it was reasonable to view the actions of the clubs as an existential threat to the revolution. The position of the popular societies was, in its own way, counter-revolutionary, as they were willing to use the power of the mob to overthrow the regime, and indeed, they would eventually, violently, do just that. But, while I'm sympathetic to some of this perspective, I'm certainly not an enthusiastic supporter of it. The leaders of the clubs should be held partially responsible for this unfortunate event. 
but so too should the leaders of the assembly and the commune. Petitioning may have been illegal, but it was not immoral, and certainly not against the spirit of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. In fact, it was the assembly, both in outlawing petitioning and in attempting to suppress the free expression of the people, that was acting in a manner contrary to the natural rights it had declared. Furthermore, perhaps, and this is entirely my own speculative point of view, but perhaps petitioning being an illegal activity made the crowd more nervous, more tense, more on edge, more likely to be suspicious of and hostile towards both the two men discovered under the altar of the fatherland as well as the national guardsmen sent to disperse them. At the Shop de Mars, blood was spilt, innocent blood was spilt, and the National Assembly, having acted in a manner contrary to the spirit of the rights of man, should be held partially accountable for it. The importance of the Shop de Mars massacre is hard to understate. A new chapter in the French Revolution had commenced. The Third Estate, having successfully waged war upon the privileged orders over the last two years, was now at war with itself. For the first time, the Assembly of the People had undeniably and violently acted against the people. Furthermore, the Assembly continued to act in such a manner, and the massacre merely heralded the rise of the reactionary tricolour terror. Historian Timothy Tackett writes, For the first time, the Patriot majority in the National Assembly had passed the threshold of state-sponsored violence. They had strongly urged the Paris militia to crush the movement. Thereafter, throughout July and much of August, the deputies pursued a policy of repression which has sometimes been portrayed as a trial run for the terror. The Assembly Surveillance Committee continued to track down participants in the counter-revolutionary conspiracy that had nearly succeeded in separating the king from the revolution. But it was equally preoccupied with the Republicans who had directly defied the authority of the Assembly. Martial law was maintained and numerous individuals were arrested in Paris, many of them held in prison without indictments. National Guardsmen and plainclothes police spies circulated in the city with orders to halt all demonstrations or street gatherings. Surveillance of the press was reinstituted for the first time since 1789 and a number of key journalists from both the conservative and the radical Republican press were arrested or forced into hiding. De Rizoy, as well as Marat, Demelar and Carialio. Many of the more moderate deputies hoped to end once and for all the persistent popular turmoil that had reigned in Paris for months and to break the strength of those parallel powers, the sections and the clubs, that had put in question their policies. The Champ de Mars massacre was the most iconic, but by no means only policy of the repression adopted by the new masters of the assembly. The authorities of both the national legislature and the municipal government brutally suppressed any and all opposition, particularly amongst the Republican left. Interestingly, the suppression of the assembly's opponents was undeniably successful. Historian Simon Sharma notes that the victory of the constitutional monarchists for a moment looked complete. In the chronology of revolutionary inevitability, this confrontation on the Champ de Mars 
is seen as not only anticipating, but causing the popular republicanism of 1792 and 1793. But that is not at all how matters seemed to stand in August and September of 1791. On the contrary, the attempts of constitutionalists to arrest the drift of revolution towards what they called anarchy seemed to have succeeded. In the wake of the Champ de Mars massacre and the rise of the tricolour terror, the power of the revolutionary left lay in tatters. A new era of institutionalised oppression had been installed, and the constitutionalists vigorously persecuted republicans, populists, and to a lesser extent, royalist conservatives. As a result of this sustained assault, by the end of July 1791, the Democrats were in disarray. The king may have fled Paris in June, but Danton, king of the Cordelier Club, fled to London in July. His associates, the journalists Marat and Demolat, went into hiding, while Robespierre changed his lodgings and lowered his profile. In the aftermath of the king's failed flight, the new Fillon Club reigned supreme. The question was, how long could a party with no genuine populist support remain at the head of a popular revolution? Thank you for listening to episode 22, The Tri-Colour Terror. This week's episode extras will focus on two intriguing primary sources relating to the aftermath of the king's flight to Varennes. Firstly, I'll read King Louis's official deposition justifying his departure from the Tuileries, a deposition which prevents, well, his dethronement, or at least for a little while longer. In the second episode extra, we'll examine a very punchy piece of journalism by Jacques Hebert, one of the king's most ferocious critics and a future leading revolutionary. Next week, we'll examine the deeply flawed constitution of 1791 and follow the efforts of Barnev and his allies as they try to significantly change the constitution just weeks before its completion. As always, if you have any questions or queries, please do send them through either to the Facebook page or via the website. And if you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History, you can support the show tremendously by either telling someone about the podcast or becoming a Patreon supporter. As always, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.